This is Reset. I'm Becky Beebe, in for Sasha Ann Simons. Experts say we're in the middle of a biodiversity crisis. Animals are going extinct at hundreds of times the rate they did before humans dominated the planet. And we've turned half of all habitable land into agricultural fields. But cities like Chicago can play a role in conserving biodiversity and helping us adapt to a changing climate. As spring arrives and plants come back to life, what can we do to address this global problem? Joining us now to discuss is Abigail Derby Lewis, a conservation ecologist at the Field Museum's Science Action Center. Abigail, welcome to Reset. Hi, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Also with us is Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. She's director of Loyola University's Baumhart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Hey, Karen. Hey, Becky. Karen, could you set up the big picture for us here? What kind of trends in nature and biodiversity are we seeing globally? If you look at that big picture, it's definitely challenging. You're seeing declines globally across all different kinds of lands, forests, which we hear a lot about, but also grasslands. And what that actually translates to is that if you look over the last century and you look at native plants and animal life, there's been about a 20% decline or more kind of across the board. So that's a challenging top line. Uh, And then there are specifics within it. Like in the U.S., 12,000 wildlife species need conservation assistance. So there are lots of very specific examples within it. But overall, there are challenges, there are declines. And so that raises the question of how to be practical about addressing that and reversing it. Mm -hmm. Abigail, when we think of things like deforestation, habitat lost, You know, we might picture a rainforest somewhere in the tropics or South America, and it it seems a little counterintuitive to think about cities like Chicago and then the fact that they also have biodiversity to lose. But they do. Could you talk a little bit about what we see in in cities? Sure. Yeah, I mean, we, (laughs) for those who don't know, we actually live in one of the most biodiverse metro areas in the country, which is truly remarkable given how developed it is and that over 8 million people call the greater region home. Um, And it is actually home, too, to some of the highest quality natural areas left in the state. We have over 3,000 different types of plants. These areas are important for threatened and endangered species across the country. And in part, this is the result, why we are so privileged here ecologically, is the result of indigenous peoples who have stewarded this landscape for over 10,000 years, and more recently because of the nearly 70,000 acres of land managed by the Forest Preserve District of Cook County Hmm. as natural areas. So, yes, biodiversity is not just in the Amazon, where Mm -hmm. I worked for a long part of my career, but it is right here in our backyards, in our cities. Mm -hmm. And we have some unfortunate trends happening in the region, but we also have um, some really positive trends. And I'm I'm happy to talk about, I like to balance that. (laughs) It's not all all gloom and doom, but um, I'm happy to talk about some of those trends. I was going to ask you what what we're seeing with our local biodiversity in terms of, of it trending downward what do we what do we see what are sort of the negatives and then we'll get to some of the positives in a minute right so downward trends i would include in that our urban tree canopy as well as wetlands and there was a study by the chicago region trees initiative this is out of the morton arboretum and it showed that from a, a decade of 2010 to 2020 tree canopy 
while it increased in most places across the Chicago region, the exception was the city of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And here in the city, the canopy cover actually dropped from 19 to 16%. And unsurprisingly, and a trend that we've seen in other metro areas, is that the lowest tree canopy was found on the south and west sides, where there's this history of poverty and racism that we see intersecting with issues of environmental justice and health. And so, you know, given that the average canopy cover in the U.S., is about 29%. Chicago's 16% definitely signals that we have work to do, not only to increase the overall numbers, but to make sure that we are planting the right trees in the right places. And I can talk a little bit about what that jargon means, <laughs> but importantly, that we are prioritizing equitable tree canopy by engaging underserved communities to understand what their vision is for transforming their spaces. Yeah. I know the city of Chicago uh, set aside, they set up a, a board to plant more trees in the city of Chicago and to address some of that. Um, and they've dedicated some some funds to planting more trees in Chicago. Uh, uh, Karen, do you can, can you give us any information about that? Or Abigail, if you know? I think the, I'm happy to jump in, and then Abigail, let's have you jump in too. But absolutely, the the city of Chicago and broadly many many partners, as Abigail's mentioned, have been looking directly at this tree canopy question. And there's been an effort with uh, the current administration to look explicitly at possibilities for tree planting to embed it in the budget for the next few years, and to look intentionally about planting in areas that need it the most. Yeah, that's right. It's the Urban Tree Advisory Board, which um, is moving forward, but isn't actually, as far as I understand, uh, up and running quite yet, and will be really wonderful when it is. And um, yeah, I mean, having Chicago Department of Transportation and Streets and Sands really on board with places like Morton Arboretum to think, as Karen said, about um, what species to put in that can be adaptable to climate change, that can offer habitat for wildlife, and also, importantly, are first and foremost in the neighborhoods um, in most need is, is such a critical piece that needs to really happen very soon. Now, Abigail, you also mentioned there are some positive trends as it relates to biodiversity in the Chicago area. Could you talk to us about some of those? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> We are seeing a, a really positive trend for things like birds. And even though at the national level, it's a pretty alarming trend that's happening. So there was this massive study that came out in 2019 from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology that suggested over the past 50 years, North America lost 3 billion birds, or about a quarter of its bird population. And a main driver of that is thought to be agricultural landscapes that are becoming more hostile to biodiversity in general, but also birds in particular. And a big piece of that is, is grasslands. Um, so grasslands are a really critical habitat for many bird species, and they used to coexist within that agricultural matrix, mm -hmm. but are now mainly restricted to protected areas. And so, you know, we have a lot of things that used to be really common, like savanna sparrows and hensel sparrows and eastern meadowlarks, et cetera, that are not anymore nationally. But here's the positive. We're actually seeing a different trend here in the Chicago region, which is that these grassland bird populations are either stable or actually increasing. And we think that is due in large part to this 
outstanding management of protected grasslands, places like Medewin Tall Grass Prairie, and importantly, the forest preserves and park district sites, particularly those along the lakefront. Huh, interesting. Karen, I know last year President Biden um, set a goal of conserving 30% of U.S. lands by 2030 uh, to stop biodiversity loss and, and perhaps do what, what Abigail is talking about. What? How else could that play out in Illinois? You're absolutely right. The The president and his administration did set forward this goal, and it's it's a 30% protection of land actually in waters mm. by 2030. And it's directly uh, to think about these questions that Abigail's talking about, which is how do we have the lands that can actually support the biodiversity that ultimately supports us? And the starting point is now the United States has about 13% land that's kind of permanently protected, which globally is actually fairly good. So that's a really nice starting point. If you translate that to Illinois, we've only got about 4%, and the vast majority of the land here in Illinois is focused on agriculture. So this creates a really interesting starting point for us as a state, as well as then obviously for us as a city, to think about how can the state look at that 20 by 30, that 30 by 30 goal, uh, and then connect multiple parcels of land so that we've got this matrix for biodiversity. And there is an effort at the state right now, a task force, and we anticipate more coming this summer. But as we sit here right now in spring, uh, how can we think about what it will take to have pieces of natural habitat so that we are, again, in this web of a thriving biodiverse region? You're listening to Reset. I'm Becky Vivi. In today for Sasha Ann Simons, we're discussing what the global biodiversity crisis looks like here in Chicago and what you can do about it. Our guests are Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert and Field Museum ecologist Abigail Derby Lewis. Abigail, what is one thing that we as individuals can do to help uh, conserve biodiversity and natural spaces here in, in Chicago and Illinois? Yeah, it's a, it's a question I think a lot about. And to riff a little bit on what Karen was saying, you know, thinking about, oh, my goodness, how does 30 by 30 translate to a place like Illinois mm-hmm. um, where we have so much ag land and so much development? And ultimately, it won't just be, can't just be about protected areas. We have to be able to engage and really think about, as Karen said, that connectivity of existing lands, private lands, um, our, everything from our corporate campuses to our parks and parkways to our boulevards and um, faith-based institutions, our schoolyards, our churchyards, um, and our backyards our front yards, you know, being Mm -hmm. able to transform and restore what we call naturalize these areas so that they are not wastelands of turf grass, but rather teeming with plants and grasses that are able not only to provide essential services for us, especially right now facing climate change, things like deep-rooted native plants that can help store water in place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Flooding's a big issue here, of course. That's a big uh, solution right there. But also at the same time, be able to provide um, host plants and food and habitat for a whole range of wildlife. So mm-hmm. what can we do? We can really think about and know that what we plant and how we manage in our own spaces in our lives matters immensely, mm-hmm. and that collectively this adds up to significant gains across the region and across the state. Um, Karen, 
I, I finally have a backyard and I'm wondering yeah. how to um yeah, how how does someone know what the best plants would be to plant in their, their yard um and, and do some landscaping? I'm I'm very much a novice. Any any tips or suggestions for the kinds of plants to to plant? Well, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> um Second of all, uh, I would add even plants in buckets on balconies will make a difference. So as you're thinking about it, though, interestingly enough, you can literally Google even at major stores pollinator plants and get tips. And some of the fun of that is that you can find varieties that flower at different times that are different heights, different colors. So to give you an example, you might be interested in a coneflower. You know, great for pollinators, kind of cool looking, spiky in the middle, but, and with cool petals. And none of that is obviously scientific technical knowledge. Uh, asters, another different kind. Bee balm, a great example of something that actually might attract some of the native bees. So pollinators, a great word to search on. And even from large stores, even to some of the smaller landscaping organizations, I'm seeing more and more uh, availability and also easily accessible knowledge to say, hey, I want something that's going to look great and it's actually going to be great for biodiversity. And you can find multiple kinds to get you the look that you might be most interested in, uh, but it's also going to attract some friends and some critters. Mm -hmm. I don't have much of a green thumb, and, and our mid to anchor Lisa Lava says she's not big into gardening. What plants would be good for minimal upkeep? Abigail? Well, um, there is actually a fun and free creating monarch habitat in your Midwestern garden field guide oh. that we made a couple of years ago, which um, it's a really great starter resource. And if I were going to tell you one easy peasy plant to put in the ground, it would be a species of milkweed. This is the only plant that monarchs can lay their eggs on. If you don't have milkweed, you won't have monarchs. And monarchs are in trouble, so that's a really good thing to do. And they are gorgeous, Becky. So there's tall ones and medium ones and short ones. They're orange and white and pink and purple. Um, there's a milkweed for you. And as Karen said, you don't have to have a yard to do it. Putting it on balconies absolutely attracts and supports monarchs. Mm -hmm. um, and so put some milkweed in and put some things that can bloom throughout the growing season. Mm -hmm. So something in the springtime like bloodroot or bluebells um, or uh, shooting stars that can be some of the first available nectar for native bees and for your early emerging insects. And then throughout the summer, yes, coneflowers and milkweed um, and blazing stars. And then something that, as Karen mentioned in the fall, asters. They will go and support the migratory return of monarchs as they make their way back down to Mexico and for all those late all native bees that need to store up for the winter. Mm -hmm. Now, one of our producers came across a story about a Chicago woman who got a $600 fine um, for, quote-unquote, weeds in her yard that were actually native plants. Um, Karen, I understand the city has a, a, a registry now to register these plants so that they're not getting fined because they are a little maybe unwieldy than uh, compared to traditional landscaping plants. Could you tell us about that? I, I think you've seen multiple people for years discovering the many benefits of native plants, including the fact that in general they're low maintenance, so to your earlier question about having to take care of them. Uh, but 
earlier on in particular, they looked different than what some of the other landscapes might have been in a neighborhood. I think you see them more and more. So now there is actually an opportunity to register when you have used native plants so that the city knows why you have that look. And there's some very simple ways to ensure then that overall when the city's trying to understand if a property is being taken care of or not, they know this is actually being taken care of and it's intentionally mm -hmm. for both biodiversity as well as for that opportunity to have that more native landscape look in every neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Abigail, how can people learn more about plants and animals in and around Chicago? We have um, probably about 40 plus different field guides. And if you go to fieldguides.fieldmuseum.org, um, you can find them. You can search for them and find them. And you can explore so many different um, species of plants and animals throughout the region. We also have, if you're like next level excited about plants and pollinators, we would love for you <laughs> to join our Monarch Community Science Project. Uh, we're going into our fourth year. It is outstanding. I do it with my kids every year, but it's for all ages. And if you go to bit.ly slash monarch monitors, um, you can find out all about that. We will train you to monitor your milkweed and record how many monarch eggs and caterpillars that you have on that milkweed. And not only are you contributing scientific data that really helps us to understand how cities can best support monarchs and other pollinators, but you'll be planting habitat for so many other wildlife species that aren't quite as charismatic as the monarch, aren't quite as well loved by the public, but are so deeply important um, for the overall health of our landscape. Sounds so like it's a real win-win, and, and we'd love to have folks join. Yeah, sounds like I have some research to do before I uh, go to the, uh, the nursery this spring. Uh, thank you both so much. That was Field Museum ecologist Abigail Derby-Lewis and Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. Thank Thank you, ladies. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.